0: let's pray together please father thank you for giving us your word and for this time to be together around it it's always exciting to hear your voice speaking in scripture to us may we receive its truths with faith and love lay them up in our hearts and practice them in our lives in Jesus' name we pray amen please turn your bibles to romans chapter 9 entering into the fifth and final sola In the series on the great solos of the Reformation, it brings us to Soli Deo Gloria. Soli Deo Gloria, to God alone be the glory. Romans chapter 9, I'm going to read verses 1 through 24, but my sermon is only going to cover verses 19 through 24. Romans 9 verse 1, this is God's Word. I am telling the truth in Christ, I am not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh, who are Israelites to whom belong the adoption as sons and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the temple service and the promises, whose are the fathers and from whom is the Christ Christ According to the flesh, who is over all, God blessed forever. Amen. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. Nor are they all children, because they are Abraham's descendants. But through Isaac, your descendants will be named. That is, it is not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of the promise are regarded as descendants. For this is the word of promise. At this time, I will come, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only this, but there was also Rebekah, when she had conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac. For though the twins were not yet born, and had not done anything good or bad, so that the purpose of God according to his choice would stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls, it was said to her, the older will serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? There is no injustice with God, is there? May it never be. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I raised you up to demonstrate my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. So then he has mercy on whom he desires and he hardens whom he desires. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault for who resists his will? On the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this? Will it? Or does not the potter have a right over the clay to make from the same lump, one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? And he did so to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he also called, not from the Jews only, but also from among the Gentiles. May God bless the reading of his holy word. I've given you a four-point outline there in your bulletin if you'd like to follow along that way. First, by way of introduction, whose show is it anyway? In the section of the Westminster Confession of Faith, uh, chapter 2.2, on the doctrine of God, uh, one of the most important truths God has revealed to us, God hath all life, glory, goodness, blessedness, in and of himself, and is alone in and unto himself all-sufficient not standing in need of any creatures which he has made, not, not deriving any glory from them, but only manifesting his own glory in, by, unto, and upon them. He is the alone fountain of all being, of whom, through whom, and to whom are all things, and hath most sovereign dominion over them, to do by them, for them, or upon them, whatsoever himself pleaseth. Then the next chapter of God's decree Point number five of that chapter says this. Those of mankind that are predestinated unto life, God before the foundation of the world was laid according to his eternal and immutable purpose and the secret counsel and good pleasure of his will hath chosen in Christ unto everlasting glory out of his mere free grace and love without any foresight of faith or good works or perseverance in either of them or any other thing in the creature has conditions or causes moving him thereunto, and all to the praise of his glorious grace. That's pure Christianity. Point seven of God's decree says this, The rest of mankind God was pleased according to the unsearchable counsel of his own will, whereby he extendeth or withholdeth mercy as he pleases. For the glory of his sovereign power over his creatures to pass by and to ordain them to dishonor and wrath for their sin to the praise of his glorious justice. God's theater for the display of his own glory is the entire created cosmos. The earth, mankind, mankind's eternal destinies, and all of history from the beginning to the very end. Is there for the glory of God. When I took Greek, when I was in seminary, I had to make a little flashcard for the word doxa. Doxa in Greek means glory. And the books that we had to write, three possible translations of that, majesty, glory, fame. And I thought, isn't that amazing? Everything is for the majesty, the glory, and the fame of God. Everything is. God is the star. God is the primary actor. God is the hero. God's glory, his majesty, his fame holds center stage. And ever since the fall of man into sin, man's been trying to steal the show. Trying to steal the show. False religions, which make man the decisive factor in salvation, have also been trying to steal the show. I I know, it's convicting stuff, isn't it? (laughs) Mankind, in his sinful, rebellious folly really does believe that he has the center stage in creation and in redemption. That everything terminates on us. Everything's about us. One great theologian wrote this, quote, We have not penetrated God's purpose sufficiently if we conclude that we are the center of God's purpose, or that his purpose terminates finally upon us by accomplishing our glorification. Rather, our glorification is only the means to a higher, indeed the highest end conceivable that God's son might be the firstborn among many brothers and all to the praise of God's glorious grace. End quote. When we see that everything God decrees has that one grand goal in his divine and perfect mind to glorify himself, everything else in life will begin to make sense. It doesn't make it hurt any less, but it does begin to make sense. Our very assurance of salvation is tied directly to God's passionate desire to glorify himself. Why are you and I going to make it to heaven? Lest his glory be diminished in any way. Because he promised it would happen. The elect of God will be resurrected and justified on the last day and redeemed in order to glorify the grace, mercy, and faithfulness of God and God alone. Our lives serve that one great purpose, the glory of the triune God. Our trials, our heartaches, they serve that purpose. Indeed, a source of great comfort for all of God's people. Psalm 46.10, be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The exaltation of God is the purpose for which everything and everyone exists. And the redeemed of the Lord love that truth. God will glorify his mercy and the salvation of his elect and his holy justice and the damnation of the wicked. That's the highest good there is. God's glorification of all of his attributes. And we dare not try to steal the show by thinking even for a second that we are the stars. We are not. God is the star. And all of us are cast in subordinate roles at the pleasure of the sovereign director of the show, God. And man's biggest problem, man's biggest problem has always been he doesn't know his place in the universe. He doesn't know why he's here. It's sin that causes us to attempt this this terrible reversal of roles with God. As if everything's about my pleasure. Or my name, or my glory, or my accomplishments, or my something. You see, all of us are written into God's story. We think that at our whim, maybe we can write God into our story. That's not it at all, dear ones. That's just not, that is totally the opposite of the truth. All of us are written into the story of God's glory. And we're written into that story however He desires. And in our passage here, we get another objection. Another objection, there's several in the passage, but lest we be here for four hours, we're just going to focus on these few verses, verses 19 and following. We get a really bold objection from a pot against the potter that made it. Look at verse 19. Right after verse 18 there where he says, he has mercy on whom he wills and he hardens whom he wills. What what, what do people say to you when you tell them you believe that? (laughs) By the way, God is totally sovereign over salvation. Whether you're going to heaven or hell is entirely up to him. It has nothing to do with you. That's not fair. I remember slamming my Bible shut and pushing it across the desk and saying, God, do I even know who you are? Is that really the way things are? Let's look at it. Look at verse 19. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault for who has resisted his will? You know, if you make that objection, that shows that you're interpreting the passage correctly. This objection only makes sense. If the Reformation doctrine of sola gratia, unconditional election, is true. Think about it. If our salvation really does depend on an independent act of our free will and ultimately depends on something that we do independently of God and hangs decisively on that point, why would anyone make this objection? They wouldn't. If God's election of individuals is based entirely on their free will cooperation with that grace and something... They did of themselves, for themselves, independently of God. They're not going to object, hey, that's not fair. If the decisive factor in salvation is the independent will of the creature, no one's going to object to that. Look back at verses 16 to 19 again. Look at it. Look at verse 16. So then it is not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I may show my power in you, and that my name may be declared on all the earth. Therefore, he has mercy on whom he wills, and whom he wills, he hardens. You will say to me then, Why does he still find fault for who has resisted his will? Folks, listen. Is it unjust for God to judge mankind for being sinful when man can't do otherwise? Is that okay? Is that unjust? The simple answer is no. It's not unjust, because freedom to do otherwise is not necessary in order for someone to be held accountable for something. The only thing necessary is the authority to do it. Does God have the authority to hold us accountable? Yes. Another theologian wrote this, What makes a person responsible is whether there's a lawgiver over him who has declared that he will require that person to give an account to him for his thoughts, words, and actions. It's not our ability to do otherwise, it's only that God has the authority to hold us accountable He says, hence if the divine lawgiver determined that he would require every human being to give a personal account to him of his thoughts, words, and actions, then every human being is a a responsible agent, whether free or not. In other words, far from God's sovereignty making human responsibility impossible, it is just because God is their absolute sovereign that men are accountable to him. And yet people still have a problem with this. The idea that if God has decreed everything that happens, how can he judge men for doing what he decreed they would do and they could not have possibly done otherwise? But it is exactly at this point that God's hand closes human mouths. God in his holy word simply asserts the simple term predestined. God has determined beforehand what's going to happen. Romans 8, 29, listen, he also predestined, those whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son and so forth. Ephesians 1.5, having predestined us to adoption. Ephesians 1.11, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Does God have the right to do this? Does God do this? That Greek verb, praorizo, predestined, you look it up in the dictionaries of the Greek New Testament, here's what it means, to decide beforehand, to determine in advance. To predetermine, God asserts His authority to determine beforehand the eternal destinies of men. God has the authority to hold men accountable for their actions, and He does. Men are not compelled, here's the key men are not compelled by anything other than their own wicked desires to sin. And they sin, love sinning, and encourage others to sin with them. The creation God made was very good, including Adam and Eve. Sin entered in not by divine force, but by Adam's desire to disobey God. Did God decree that that was going to happen? Yes. But was Adam forced to sin against his will? Was Adam saying, I don't want to eat from this fruit. I I, I don't want to do it. I don't want to do it. And God's going, You're going to do it anyway. Is that what happened? Adam wanted to sin. Adam wanted to sin. God decreed it would happen, but God's not the one that did it. Adam did. The secondary cause did. Adam brought sin into creation. And all this was under the decree and plan of God. But God is not the active agent with evil desires. Adam was. Adam sinned because Adam wanted to sin. But why? Why would God allow this to happen? Why would God decree that this would happen? And the very simple answer is God purposed to order it to his own glory. And my friends, that's all we need to know. It glorifies his name. What's the highest good in the whole universe? What is the highest good in the whole universe? God's glory. It's more important than my comfort. It's more important than my happiness. Who's on center stage in creation? God is. We're not. We're the creation. God's the creator. We are tools in his hands for the accomplishment of his own self-glorification. Human beings serve just that one grand purpose, to glorify God. And God, speaking through Paul, closes the mouths of the objector against God's right to do as he pleases with his own creation. To the objection, why does God still blame us? Who has resisted his will? Who can resist his will? Look at verses 20 and 21. But indeed, O man, who are you to reply against God? Will the thing formed say to him who formed it, why did you make me like this? Does not the potter have power over the clay from the same lump to make one vessel for honor and another for dishonor? One thing that must be borne in mind anytime we are tempted to question God or call him into the witness stand to be cross-examined by us is this. God is absolutely and perfectly holy. He does not have a dark side or an evil side. Yet it's amazing how often even a mature Christian can want to bring him down from heaven and put him in the witness stand and cross-examine him. What are you doing? Why did you do this? We, on the other hand, are not holy. We're sinful, depraved, evil, adulterous, rebellious, discontent, covetous, spiritually cold, indifferent, half-hearted, hard-hearted creatures. Do we as fallen humans who really are responsible for all the evil that we do, do we really want to question the holy God? Do we as evil sinners really want to challenge the holiness and the justice of him who sits enthroned in unapproachable light? Do we consume with selfish pride and folly? Do we really want to cross-examine the one who is praised by unfallen angels with their eyes covered? And yet we're bold, aren't we? We're bold in the things we think, the things we say, the things we pray. God through Paul is telling the world here in verse 20, if you're a fallen, ignorant, rebellious, even a redeemed person, a regenerate person still has rebellion in your heart, foolish person, you're going to reply against God? You're going to question God? That's the height of presumption. I've told you all that story. My my great-grandmother died uh, at 106, was 64 years a widow. And her husband died, massive heart attack, when he was 44 and left him with five kids and they ate potatoes and often were poor and, and had nothing. My grandma, the one who's 100 right now, got really upset once, really upset about it, and was tired of the hardship that was caused by that and said to my great-grandmother, why did God do this to us? And they, they, I was told that's the only time she ever snapped at anybody. She said, don't you dare question God. I thought, Wow. That's the way we should be. That's the way we should be about every dark providence that happens. Will the thing formed begin to argue with the one who formed it? Will those who are happily content in their life of sin dare to stand against the holy God and blame him for the things that we freely do against him? Listen to verse 21 again. Does not the potter have power over the clay from the same lump to make one vessel for honor and another for dishonor? And here we have the end of the argument with God. God has the right, the power, the prerogative to make one pot for honor and another for dishonor. That which God called into being out of nothing and whose existence he sustains by the word of his power is that over which he has an absolute right. Right? I want to ask you, let's say there's 30 people on death row. 30 people on death row. They're all guilty. They confess to it, capital crimes. And they're about to be executed by the justice of the land. And the governor can pardon them if he chooses to. If he pardons 17 of them and let the other 13 die in the electric chair, no one would object by saying, that's not fair. What's fair? All 30 of them die for their capital crimes. That's our situation. That's what we forget. What do I deserve at the hand of God? To go to hell. Just remember, God's interactions with men are always him as the holy and perfect, righteous God dealing with evil, wicked sinners who deserve eternal death. Wouldn't we think it strange if the inmates on death row blamed the governor for the crimes they freely committed? It's the governor's fault. God didn't decree our fall into sin, but we're always acting with full knowledge of what we're doing. And we always do what we desire to do the most. We always do. And apart from God's special saving grace, what we want to do is serve and love sin. What we want to do is rebel against God's authority. Pardoning some, And not all people who are justly sentenced to die is not unfair. It's grace and mercy to those that are undeserving. And it's justice and fairness for the rest who never wanted grace anyway. God has the right and the authority to do as he pleases with his own creation. Look at verses 22 and 23 and 24 there. What if God... Wanting to show his wrath and to make his power known, endure with much long suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, and that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy which he had prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. Let us always remember that the punishment of the unrepentant wicked is not an arbitrary act on God's part. It is designed to manifest his displeasure against sin and to display the glory of his true character. The salvation of the righteous is, to, is designed by God to display the riches of his grace. All human beings are equally liable to be punished. And the decision regarding who is left justly to be punished and who receives mercy and grace is entirely up to God. He told Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. Some are prepared for wrath and destruction. Others are prepared for mercy and glory. God shows great patience toward the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction and indescribable grace toward the vessels of mercy. Notice in verse 24 how naturally Paul returns to the main subject of the discussion of Romans 9. He's answering the question, why are so few Jews coming to know Christ here? Why are so few of them believing the gospel when I preach it? And his point is, it's based on God's sovereign choice and God's sovereign and irresistible effectual call. You see that there in verse 24? Even us whom he called, he called them effectually. Not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. I want to encourage you, don't miss the forest for the trees here. Think about the progression in Paul's argument throughout the whole chapter. God chose Isaac, not Ishmael. God chose Jacob, not Esau. And was it because Jacob was better? What kind of a man was Jacob? Deceived his dying father? Jacob's, Jacob's a scoundrel. Isaac is another one. Who's, these aren't good. There, there are no heroes here. It's, God is the, the one in his grace. He's the hero of the story. That's a right that God claims and a prerogative that God does exercise. He chose Isaac, not Ishmael. Jacob, not Esau. Paul's point is the reason that the people that are coming to know Christ are coming to know Christ is entirely up to God. It's his decision. God unconditionally selects, according to his own purpose and divine right, individuals that he's going to save from among the guilty family of mankind. God leaves the rest righteously in their sins. God is not restricted by genealogical descent or foreseen works. What would he have foreseen anyway? Sin. Sin. God's selection of men to save is among the Jews and the Gentiles. We can all be thankful for that, us Gentiles. The selection is according to his purpose and is entirely unconditional from the human perspective. If you want to see one Bible verse, unconditional election on full display, Romans 9-11. Highlight it in your Bible, put a sticky tab in there, star it on your iPhone or whatever. Romans 9-11, Paul hammers the point. For the children not yet being born... Nor having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him who calls. It was said to her, to Rebekah, the older shall serve the younger. Meaning Esau is going to serve Jacob. As it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. Now if God was fair, and only fair, and only just, what would it say? Would it say, Jacob I have loved, and Esau I have hated? God was only fair, what would it say? Jacob I hated and Esau I hated. Why? Because they're both hateful. God hates the workers of iniquity. Psalm 5 verse 5 says that. So the miracle there is not, oh, Esau I hated, that's terrible. No, it's Jacob I have loved. That's the miracle. God has mercy on whom he wills and whom he wills he hardens and no one can charge him with being unfair because all men deserve the wrath of God. If the sovereign king chooses to pardon some among the defiant and guilty and condemned people under his sovereign rule, that's grace, not justice. That's mercy, not fairness. Why did God create that particular Egyptian pharaoh? whose heart was hardened by God so that he would not let the people go until after the 10th plague. Why was that man knit together in his mother's womb and raised up and fed and taught the ways of Egypt? Why did that man exist? Look at verse 17. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I may show my power in you, and that my name may be declared in all the earth. Now, in the minds of Egyptian pharaohs, why did they exist? They thought they were gods. They thought they were the offspring of the gods. And the whole created cosmos depends on them to exist. And Without them, the sun can't come up and the moon won't come up. And there's no harvest and there's no Nile flooding. They thought everything was about them. And Moses, here you have this man that can't speak well. All he's got is a staff, no army. Walks right up to his face. And that passage being quoted, he said, Pharaoh, i got a message for you from God. And he's saying, you exist to make my name great. And you know, that's the reason everybody exists. I think one reason we don't see much deep, heartfelt repentance is the God that's so often preached is not this one. It's not like this. And this is offensive. As I'm reading this and preaching it, I'm just I'm remembering how hard this was years ago. <laughs> he told him, he told his people again and again in the book of Ezekiel God lists judgment after judgment. I'm gonna do this and destroy you, I'm gonna do I'm gonna raise up your enemies to do this, and I'm then I'm gonna do this to you and this to you. And twenty one times he then says, Then you will know that I am Yahweh. When God acts, the purpose is that all in creation would know that he alone is God. Men can hide from God. They can spit at God. They can run from God. But one day, the whole race of mankind, resurrected and standing on resurrected feet, will bow before him. Paul made that promise in Philippians 2, nine. Therefore God has also highly exalted him, meaning Christ, and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven, of those on earth, of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That Pharaoh, on the day of judgment, will be resurrected, and he will take a knee before Christ, just like all of us will. Everyone will confess it. All the vessels of wrath, all the vessels of mercy shall confess it. Richard Dawkins will take a knee before Jesus. Dan Barker from the Freedom from Religion Foundation will take a knee before King Jesus. All of the elect will bow before him and confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father, just like we did here because we were thankful to be redeemed. Some will confess he is Lord on their way to eternal happiness, the rest on their way to eternal misery. But they will do it. Both groups exist for the glory of God, the elect and the reprobate, the vessels of mercy and the vessels of wrath. God is not a weak beggar in heaven, frustrated that people just won't use their free will to love him. That's not who he is. And so the real question is not, what will you do with Jesus? The question is, what is Jesus going to do with you? That's the real issue. God is the sovereign king of the universe. He raises up and throws down. He raises up kingdoms and then topples them over and laughs from heaven at their plots to overthrow him. People asked the question in 2004. Remember that tsunami? Remember that tsunami? all the videos of that? That was terrifying that tsunami that hit the coasts of 14 countries and killed 250,000 people, people kept saying, where was God in that? Where was God in that? Where was God in that? And some of the Christian, Christian pundits, oh, God had nothing to do with that. God had nothing to do with that. What's the real answer? Where was God in that? God did it. What about all those people that died? God killed every one of them. Well, why would he do that? This answer is going to shock you, but it's the biblical answer. He did that as an act of mercy. You know why? As a wake-up call to the survivors. You know how many people started going to church because of that? You know how many people started? I know people who are Christians because of 9-11. Adults who were shaken out of their slumber. I could die tomorrow. I better find out what this is all about. Jesus said when he was told that the tower that fell and killed those 18 people... What was his answer to that? Unless you repent, a tower might fall on you. Unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Do you think that they were worse than you and that's why a tower fell on them? I would ask all of us. Do we think the people in Sumatra, Sri Lanka, and Thailand, we think they were any worse than the people in Northeast Tennessee who sat in their quiet homes and watched video after video after video of that mountain of water destroying everything in its path? Unless we repent, we will all likewise perish. I remember showing those videos to my little kids in 2004. That's crazy. That's almost 20 years ago. And they said, boy, we're glad we don't live by the beach so God can't do things like that to us. I'm like, no, 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 you can. You could be sitting on a fault line and not know it. We might sink into the ground before this sermon's over. God sends disaster and suffering. Why does he do that? To shake people out of their laziness. And they're in different slumber. There is a day of judgment, dear ones. And it's going to be way worse than a wave of water. God is the star of this show called human history. This is his universe. He is sovereign over it. He will dispose of it. And everyone in it, as he sees fit, to make a name for himself. God has mercy on whom he wills and whom he wills, he hardens. And all to the praise of his glorious justice and of his glorious grace. Nothing is coincidental. Nothing is left to chance. God is neither arbitrary nor capricious. Everything is according to the plan and the decree of God to bring glory to himself. And that's how we make sense out of our hardships. It's his divine right, his divine prerogative. And if that doesn't make your heart happy, then maybe you have a heart of stone. I've had people tell me, you you really believe that? That God, like, that's actually what you believe? You believe God is like that? That he's sovereign over everything and he's sovereign over who goes to heaven and who goes to hell? Yeah, that's what scripture says. I could never believe in a God like that. And the answer is, yeah, apart from his grace, you never will either. When the floodwaters receded after the days of Noah, humanity, united by one language, what did they learn from that disaster? What did they learn from all that suffering? Nothing. Nothing. God destroyed the whole world and nobody learned anything from it. And immediately, men, just like you and me, banded together, all had one language. We're going to make a tower that reaches to the heaven. God told them, I want you to spread out, take dominion over the whole earth. And they said, no, we're all going to stay in one place and have a huge city and build a tower to the heavens to make a name for ourselves. Sinful men are on a never-ending quest to steal the show. Life is not about us. It's not about our glory. Shall the pot say to the potter, I want to make a name for myself. Shall the pot say to the potter, I know you're the creator and the sustainer of the entire universe, including me. But I really want people to praise and glorify me, even though I'm your creation and depend on you for all my gifts and talents. You see how irrational that is? And yet every one of us struggles with it. So I want to encourage myself and all of you, stop trying to build towers to memorialize yourself and your greatness. The universe, indeed, your own life exists only for the glory of the God who created it. By God's decree, by God's sovereignty, some people find this out before they die and they are effectually called and they're convicted of their sin and they're adopted into God's family and indwelt by his Holy Spirit and guided in his ways for the rest of their lives in this world and they're given repentance and faith in Christ and assurance and they're brought into the church and the rest will live in opposition to those grand truths. But one way or the other, whether they want to or not, they will glorify God. Everyone does so. God endures, it says there in verse 22. It's an amazing verse. He endures the presence of the vessels of wrath so that he can make known the riches of his grace to the vessels of mercy. That's why there's a human history. God is gathering his elect people into his church. That's why he tolerates all of the evil. The righteous love the sovereign glory of their wonderful, loving, heavenly father. We may chafe at it when we first are converted. I don't understand this. I don't understand why this would happen or that would happen. But as you live life, as you become more seasoned, as you suffer more, it's either trust God as sovereign or lose your mind. If you haven't figured that out yet, because you're not old enough to, if you live a while longer, you will. The kingly sovereignty of God is one of the most precious truths that God has revealed to his church, to his people Let's make sure that we don't leave this discussion in the realm of theory, though. The glorification of God's wrath will come against sinners who deserve nothing less. Remember, God is, is always just. He's always righteous. First John 1, 5, great biblical truth. This is the message which we have heard from him and declare to you. God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. God is not capable of being harsh. He's not capable of being lenient either in the application of his justice. He's always just. Sinners who are unrepentant They do everything that they do, according to Romans 1, in full knowledge of the coming judgment. And they not only could care less, but they also encourage others to join them in their rebellion against God. In fact, it says that in the Proverbs. They they can't even sleep at night unless they've made someone else stumble. Innocence in relation to God is a word that no longer has meaning for mankind since we fell into sin. We are willfully in Adam and love being there until God in his sovereign grace Breaks us and frees us. But let's remember the cost of our redemption. God's holy justice, that justice that he has, that he's always true to, that fell very heavy on Christ. This is no mere theological discussion of abstraction here. When we talk about God having mercy on whom he wills, we're talking about the terrible suffering of Christ in real history. The demonstration of his holy justice against all the sins of God's chosen people. That fell heavy and hard on Jesus, the one who loved his church and gave himself for her. Remember this scene, Luke twenty-two forty-one, And he was withdrawn from them about a stone's throw, and he knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if it's your will, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Then an angel appeared to him from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. Then his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And when he arose up from prayer and had come to his disciples, he found them sleeping from sorrow. And he didn't decide, well, you guys aren't worth this. I'm going back to heaven. In his moment of greatest sadness, even the men whose souls he came to save, who had the incomparable benefit of being an eyewitness to all these miracles and they, they had the benefit of special pastoral care from Jesus, they couldn't stay awake to pray for him. They couldn't lift a finger to ease that burden. He had to carry it all. And when they felt threatened, they abandoned him and they hid and left him to be arrested and punched and abused and hit in the head with reeds and scourged, crucified, stripped naked. And I want everyone here to recognize something very important. We all suffer. All of us suffer. We all experience sadness. And for many, it really does seem at times that... There's too much permanent damage in our lives that there's no way we can imagine God fixing it. Not even in the next life. But please recall what Paul wrote a little earlier, Romans eight eighteen. He says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time, that includes every kind of suffering we experience, they're not worthy to be compared. It's not worthy to even put it in the same sentence. With the glory which shall be revealed in us. It's the most comforting part of being a believer. Jesus is real. He was really here. As one theologian said once, he bled real blood that was RH-typeable on wood, and and there was blood on that cross when, when he died, and blood had trickled down, and he died. He was really here. He left footprints. They had to hold him. They had to carry him to that tomb and put him in there. He walked on the ground that we walk on. He breathed the air that we breathe. He felt what we feel, except only in a righteous way. He felt the pain of our fallen world, perhaps more acutely than anyone ever could. And he left the altogether blessed and happy presence of God the Father in heavenly glory to enter this realm, to rescue his people, to save us. And he did this while we were still unrepentant, sinful, faithless, unrighteous, rebellious. His mission was to save us through his suffering and death and resurrection. He did what only he could do. And that is to change the hearts of men to love what they once hated. Now, folks, you've got to realize, people ask me all the time, do you believe miracles happen today? <laughs> if you're a Christian, that's one of the most astounding miracles there is. No weapon ever fashioned. No technology ever invented. No power on earth. No army that has ever marched could change. The conceited, self-assured, spiritually cold, prideful, hateful rebel into a docile, loving, obedient, submissive child of God. That's something only God can do by his love and his power. Jesus was really here. And when he was here, he left lepers with skin like that of little children, it says. And he left blind people seeing. He left hopeless people with a blessed assurance that they really were loved by God. Loved by the God they thought had abandoned them. He gave grieving parents their dead children back, raised to life. He left truth in the place of religious falsehood. He left good in the place of evil. Everywhere he went, and everyone who saw him, and everyone who who has heard of him, has seen a great light shining in a dark place, even if they did not understand it. Jesus was really here, and he left footprints in the sand, and bloodstains on wood and on the ground. He left an empty tomb with a stone rolled away, and his kingdom marches forward, and all to the praise of God's glorious grace, his immeasurable grace. The most comforting part of being a Christian is knowing God's passion for my salvation is as great as his passion for his own glory. We trust that Jesus' work will save us perfectly because God will not fail to glorify his grace. And Jesus will not fail to do the mission for which he came. That of all he has given me, I will lose none but raise it up at the last day, he said. He was really here. And we know from the book of Hebrews, he is not ashamed of to call us his brothers and his sisters. He's our elder brother. So I don't care who you are or where you've been, if you're repentant, if you're a believer, it doesn't matter where you've been or what you've been up to or how you've sinned, Jesus is not ashamed of you. He's not ashamed to call you his brother, to call you his sister. The cost of our redemption was as high as it could be. The cross that Jesus bore was heavy, the burden unimaginable. It's described in Isaiah 53, stricken, smitten, and afflicted was our Lord for our sins. And not a one of us was worthy that he should do this. Perhaps even in eternity, we will still not fully grasp the meaning of grace. But for you who know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, always give your very best for him. That's the hardest part about being a Christian. You always know in your heart, I could do better. I should be better. I should be better at loving my wife. I should be better at loving my children. I should be better at loving my church. I should pray harder. Why am I like this? Oh, wretched man that I am, who will rescue me from this body of death and the word of assurance? There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Yeah, but I sin all the time. There is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. God loves them. Jesus died for them. As Paul says, the one who loved me and gave himself for me. I was crucified with him. It's no longer I who live. Yes, the struggle with sin goes on, but it's no longer I who live. But Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live by faith, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So I say to you, don't allow your past failures to stop you from pursuing holiness today. For many Christians, guilt over the past, it paralyzes them. Just remember, God's grace is glorified in removing all of the guilt. The sins you once drank in and loved, they don't define you as a new creature in Christ. As far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us, including our Christian failures. And he remembers them no more, meaning he never holds them against us. For us to forget that God alone is the show, God God alone is the star of the universe... In its entire history. It's like it's like a paintbrush, believing it painted the masterpiece instead of the artist who used it. You see a great painting, you don't find the paintbrush and put it down and say, Wow, you're amazing. That's you you praise the artist. Our salvation doesn't depend on us in any way because our salvation has its sole purpose. To glorify God. The grace of God. That's why all works are excluded from being decisive in it. That's why our willing and our running are excluded from it. Boasting is excluded from salvation. Period. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. By grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God. Not of works lest anyone should boast. Why is that? So that God alone can boast. Why are these people here? Why is this wretch going to be in heaven? To glorify God, he can boast. Christ can boast. Here am I, and this wretch, one of these wretches you gave me, and all the rest of these wretches, I've redeemed them. Here they are, redeemed. Bring them into heavenly glory now. All human boasting is excluded because God's gracious power alone is what saves us. And if the decisive factor was in us, faith, repentance, good works, perseverance, we would most certainly boast, and we'd have every right to do so. What makes the saved to differ from the unsaved? Grace. Grace. It is because of this that the redeemed have assurance. Remember we saw that? We looked at Romans four sixteen. Therefore, justification is by faith so that it would be by grace so that it would be guaranteed. Because if it's by anything in us, done by us, or any of our works, our sanctification, our fruit, anything like that, it's not going to be guaranteed then. All attempts on our part to steal the show are catastrophic because you know what they do? They ruin the show and destroy our assurance. The decisive factor is God and may he humble our hearts more and more to find our highest joy and our highest satisfaction in the display of his glory, not ours. And may God be praised again by his people in our generation for having unconditionally elected us irresistibly, effectually called us, justified us by faith alone, adopted us into his family, and on the last day glorified us. And all to the praise of God's glorious grace alone. Soli Deo Gloria. To God alone be the glory. As the Great Reformation brought back to the consciousness of the Christian world in such pristine manner 500 years ago, may it echo from the walls of every sanctuary of every church again on earth. To God alone be glory. Johann Sebastian Bach on his organ had it chiseled into the wood. Soli Deo Gloria. That's why his music was so amazing. It wasn't for him. It was for God who had saved and redeemed him. A while back actually not too long ago, a few months ago, caught myself praying rather desperately because of some very painful trial in my family. And I kept asking what I know I'm not supposed to ask. Lord, why is this happening? Why is this happening? Yeah, I know the answer. Why is this happening? I know everything glorifies you, but I don't see it. It's in those sorts of moments that we begin to understand just how precious and supremely important the glory of God is. And I thought of this illustration. I thought of this to challenge myself, and I want to challenge you with it. Let's say God put two buttons in front of you and asked you to push only one of them. No matter which button you push, either one, you'll go to heaven when you die. No matter which button you push, God's going to be glorified. And there's a difference, though, between the two buttons. If you push the first button, your life's going to be close to perfect in this world. You'll have a happy, wonderful marriage. All your children will walk closely with the Lord and love the Lord and will be saved. All of them will have godly marriages. All your grandchildren will know Christ too. You'll have a long and healthy, happy life. You'll have good shepherds and friends in your local church, and that church will never be rocked by scandal, sin, heresy, or hardship, and God will be glorified. If you push the second button... Your life's going to have unending pain, heartache, difficulties, sadness. You're going to experience terrible losses. You will experience humiliation and embarrassment. You will go through betrayals from your closest and most trusted friends. Your marriage and children will be a source of heartache, sleeplessness, and sadness. You will deal with depression and anxiety that is profound and deep at times. Your work situation will be very hard and challenging at times. Your life will be shortened because of the physical and mental toll all these hardships will take on you. And yes, God will be glorified in this, but he'll be glorified a little bit more than the first button. Which button are you going to push? If there's any hesitation, what's our problem? We're trying to steal the show. Psalm 46, listen, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. What is being implied there? You're going to have trouble. You're going to be in trouble. Some of it will be self-inflicted. Some of it you're not going to have any control over at all, but he's a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear even though the earth be removed and though the mountains be carried into the midst of the sea, though its waters roar and be troubled, and though the mountains shake and with its swelling, be still and know that I am God. God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The exaltation of God, the worship of God, the glory of God for the redeemed, God will show it to you. He will teach it to you. There is nothing more beautiful than that. Psalm 147.1, praise the Lord for it is good to sing praises to our God for it is pre- pleasant and praise is beautiful. Life and the world are not about me. God is far more concerned with my character than my comfort. It's not about you, it's not about me. Everything is for the glory of God and man's chief purpose is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. God is the creator. We're his creation. Without him, there is no us. Without him, we can't do or accomplish anything. Therefore, the only real praise and glory must all go to him, especially for our salvation. God gives and God takes away as he sees fit. He gives days of peace and days of calamity. But for his predestined, chosen, effectually called, justified, and adopted children, there is something he gives us that can never change, never be lost, never be stolen, never diminish, and that does not fade away. And that is the promise of eternal glory in heaven. Forgiven, glorified, justified with God for eternity. The forgiveness of sins and justification of our persons we have is our anchor that holds no matter what he gives or takes away. And sometimes it seems, my final sentence to you, sorry we ran a little bit long today, but sometimes it seems our whole lives are a giant lesson intended by our loving Heavenly Father to keep that truth front and center in our minds. Let's pray. Father, we glorify you for our salvation and none other. We know that we believe in Jesus solely because you appointed us to eternal life. When you could have left us in our sins, and we would have been happy to stay there. So we give you all the glory in you alone. Soli dear Gloria. To God alone be the glory for our salvation. Help us to have a bigger view of your greatness, your sovereignty. And may we reflect that to others. We ask in Christ's name. Amen.